New Year's Sunday. Here's the text. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 8 through 12. The topic is, remember you were once without hope. Remember you were once without hope. And I want to show you why I don't think that's a negative text or title rooted in this text. Ephesians 2, 8 through 12. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for our hand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, so Gentiles, Jews, which is made the flesh by hands. Remember, there it is again, so that's one, two. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Aren't those strange words? There are two direct commands to remember something in our text. Now that in itself isn't strange at all because the Bible's constantly calling us to remember certain theological truths. And there's a reason for that. It's because God knows that our culture, the culture you live in, it, it tends toward a natural drift away from objective moral absolutes. Our, our worship of acceptance and tolerance makes a commitment to revealed truth feel loveless. That's the trick of the age, the spirit of the age, where a commitment to revealed truth is made to appear loveless. In fact, I would argue, I would argue there's been a big shift in the cultural critique of the Christian faith. The cultural attack is no longer primarily that the Christian faith is untrue. That's because that in itself has had very little success. It's just hard to prove that Jesus didn't live, that he didn't die on the cross, that there isn't an empty grave, because they're historic facts that don't depend on any emotional attachment to be true. They don't try to prove Christianity untrue anymore. They try to prove Christianity unloving. That's the argument. We need to know what's going on, church. The more successful critique of the Christian faith is that it's unloving, it's intolerant, it's judgmental. That's a much easier and more popular way to dislodge Christianity from broad cultural acceptance. And that's, that's the argument that frequently comes up. So, our creator, our designer, constantly calls us back to remembering divinely revealed objective truth. That's not surprising. The weird thing in this text isn't the command to remember. It's what we're commanded to remember. And what we're commanded to remember twice 
isn't that we've been saved by grace and not by works. No, that's true, but that's not what we're called to remember. We are called to, commanded to remember that we were once separated from Christ, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Verse 12. Don't ever forget that. The inspired writer says. So as we enter this new year, this text seems to be pressing our lives in the wrong direction. We're focused on the days ahead. We're pressing into the new year with its future, its dreams, its aspirations, its resolutions. And Paul's not calling us into the future. He's saying, look back at your past. And for many of us, a very distant past. What's he doing? Isn't this all kind of negative? Why, when Paul brings our horse into the starting gate for the new year, why does he back him in instead of having him facing forward? Clearly, Paul sees it to be a great spiritual benefit for me and for you to remember that we were once hopeless, he says. Hopeless. He doesn't see this as being depressing or morbid. It's not futile or empty to consider that we were without hope and without Christ. This remembering, at least according to Paul, it will keep us from it will keep us from singing worship songs and hymns with cold hearts in a detached way. It will keep us from praying without passion and fervor. This kind of remembering will keep us all joyfully sacrificing for reaching those perishing around us. So in other words, according to Paul, this truth that we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, it will be made more alive and more hot in our blood if we don't just skip over the command to remember, Don, you were once absolutely hopeless. So I don't think of myself that way. Okay, let's get into it. Point number one. If you're visiting, people around you aren't shocked that I blah, 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 and then come to point number one. Point number one, we are to remember that we were all without God and without hope. I think, I think Paul is being very careful here, and I want to call your attention to something that you might not think is relevant, but I'm hoping to show you it is. He calls our attention to two specific descriptions and then the reason for each. And I, I think he does this because for many of us here, we just can't recall a dark, dysfunctional past from which we turned when we were saved. I mean, that's sure my case. I have a hard time with this text. This being without hope, Don. And I'll tell you why. It's hard for me to get my head around it because I was raised in a, in a wonderful Christian home that knew nothing of the worldliness today that actually that most Christians would even smirk at these days. We never, we never smoked. 
smoked. We never drank. To this day, I've, I've never tried either one. And I'm personally, I don't make it a big doctrine. I'm personally happy with that choice. Other than in television shows, I've never seen the inside of a nightclub or a bar. I don't need to. I don't intend to. There's nothing in that scene I'm very interested in. I watched some of the stuff last night, these people celebrating New Year's Eve, and I go, oh, God, deliver me from that. I'd pay $5,000 not to have to go to some of those things. I never once dated a non-Christian girl, not once in my life. Going to church three or four times a week was mandatory. No one ever sat down and asked me if I felt like it. Before I could read the Bible for myself, my parents read me Bible stories every night before going to bed. Now, if all of that sounds rather idyllic for some of you and sheltered for others of you, and it may well be, I'm not arguing. My point is, this creates a huge problem for me because it's hard for me to remember that I was once without God and without hope in this world. That just makes no sense to me. And that's why Paul frames his words the way he does. This is what I'm getting back to here. Therefore, remember that at one time, you, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. What's that about? Well, the reason, the reason Paul frames his discussion about what we were apart from Christ, the reason why he does it in this strong covenant Jewish terminology is to keep me from thinking that when he says people are without hope, he's just referring to people with a sordid past, people who did lots of bad things. No, those aren't the only people who are without hope and without God in this world. This is really important. We're bringing Paul's main point to the surface here. He's talking about people who were without God and without hope simply because they were Gentiles. They weren't bank robbers, child molesters, kidnappers, good, moral, upright people. They were outside the covenant. That's us, by the way, most of us. We were people outside the covenant of God with a particular people, a covenant he made with those people, those people alone, his covenant people, Israel. So when Paul says, I, Don Horbin, was without God and without hope, he doesn't mean I was a bank robber. So God wanted nothing to do with me. No, he means apart from that door being opened from God's side through the rescue mission of Jesus Christ for the world, there was no future for me as part of the people of God or you. We really were without hope. I don't even have to remember the day I was saved to know how on Paul's covenant terms. I was an outsider. You were an outsider. So in expanding on that powerful, powerful thought, here's what he, here's what he says in, in verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time, look at separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he says, he says, 
I wasn't a recipient of these covenants of promise. He says that we Gentiles were strangers. That's the word, strangers to them. That means they didn't apply to us. We weren't a part of them. They weren't initially for us. And the promises were, were good promises. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Look at Jeremiah. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. We only get in on this through Christ. This was given to Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Those are terrific promises, but apart from Christ, they, they're not for you. They're not for me. To put it in the words of the Apostle Paul, only in Christ Jesus are those who were far off brought near. This has nothing to do with how good a person you were. This is why I was without hope with the kind of upbringing I had. You can't get into heaven with that. Without Christ, we were outsiders without hope, no matter how morally good or how religious. Remember this, says Paul. Remember it. Are you ever made complacent when you think back on your faith story and realize you've never truly messed up your life? Do you ever allow that lack of an outwardly messed up life to deceive you that you were ever anything other than without God and without hope? The Bible says, let the remembrance of that come to all of us nice, good, well-behaved Gentile people. We were without hope. I said earlier, Paul had two descriptions of our past and two reasons. The first We've just seen. He frames my hopelessness in these very Jewish terms so I will realize that my hopelessness isn't due to an immoral life from which I turned at conversion. I was simply by my physical birth outside the covenants of promise. That's the first thing he says. The second way Paul describes our hopelessness is by saying that we were, verse 12, without God in this world. And even here, he means something pretty specific. He doesn't mean we were without God in the sense that we were atheists. He doesn't mean we didn't believe in God. He doesn't mean that we lacked information about God. Neither of those things is what Paul means when he says, I was without God in this world. He means, he means that we were without hope because apart from Jesus Christ, a holy God was unapproachable by us, by any of us. He means that without Jesus Christ, I have a threat in God rather than a heavenly father in God. This is exactly what Paul means. He said it already in this Ephesians text, Ephesians 2, 3, among whom we all, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, look at that, children of wrath. And then he says, 
like the rest of mankind. Why does he say we were all, and then again, just like the rest of mankind? I'll tell you why. Because I don't really believe that I was as bad as a lot of other people. You probably don't either. I mean, pick your figure from history. We'll go with the common one, you know, Adolf Hitler. Sure, he did. <laughs> and then, and then, Paul, Don, Don, you're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Don't pick somebody else because whoever you pick, you're just like them in terms of your relationship with God. All of us. Underscore those words. We all, like the rest. We all means everybody. Like the rest means no one stands in worse shape before God than I. Did you hear that sentence? No one stands in worse shape before God than I. Or than you. Like the rest. No one escapes this problem without Christ, children of wrath. So this is a huge problem. When Paul says that we were what we were by nature, that's what he says, he means that we were, this is what we were apart from any special intervention by God. We just get justice from God and we can't survive that. Okay, point number two. Doesn't Paul say that he forgot all the things that were behind? How can he now tell us to remember that we were once without hope? It's a fair question. Here's, what he's, here's where he says that. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. That sounds different, doesn't it? Straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Don't those verses contradict his words in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12? No, they don't. Not at all. But you need to take careful note of what Paul's talking about in Philippians 3. When Paul says he labored to live a life forgetting what lies behind, he's not talking about forgetting that he was without hope. He's talking about forgetting about the accomplishments that he was relying on to give him hope before God. Specifically, he's talking about the things he did to cover up his hopelessness. He's talking about the things he did to secure his life before God without Jesus Christ. I shouldn't take the time to read it, but let me just, here, I'll show you that. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness. Look at this, righteousness under the law. Wow. How many people can say that? But whatever gain I had, Counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I'm not talking about, he's talking about the things that he, that he was counting on for his righteousness. I count them as rubbish. 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So what Paul says he forgets from his past is the things I was using to cover up my hopelessness apart from Christ. I was keeping the law just as blamelessly as I could to secure my position without Jesus. Point number three, what practical difference does remembering our past hopelessness make? This is how I want to tie some things up. Why is it so important? Remember, Paul says, everyone in the room, remember, you were once without hope and without God. It had nothing to do with being a bad person. You were outside the covenant. Jesus Christ brought you in. Remember how hopeless it was for you before. Okay, so what does that remembering do for us? I want to close by letting the scriptures answer that question. I have three examples. I'll try and go quickly. So A, the first passage is kind of a long one. It's a parable. I don't know if you've read this before unless you read through your whole Bible. It's a, it's a graphic parable. It's not a historic account. It's an illustration, a parable. God tells a backslidden Israel that when he found her, she was like a baby that someone had left by the side of the road. We had missionaries, I won't tell you who, in this past World Impact Sunday, we had missionaries speaking who found two babies under some rubble on the street that had just been left. They've adopted them. They raised them as their own. Okay, so this is... This isn't a a detailed historic account. It's a parable, but it's about that same kind of thing, about a baby. God tells a backslidden Israel that when he found her, she was like a baby that someone had just thrown by the road to die. God picked her up, raised her to health and beauty. And then there's terminology that we don't even use anymore. But I think it's there for bluntness. Here's the account. I've edited, shortened it a bit. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at the age of love. So the baby's grown up. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth, shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen, covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck, put a ring in your nose, and I guess they're doing that again, and earrings in your ears, a beautiful crown on your head. So you get the picture. This little baby could do nothing for herself, just lost, lying, I'm sorry, in her blood. God, the picture of God in Israel, I I picked you up and you, you were bigger and I clothed you and took care of you, did everything for you that you couldn't do for yourself. I did it all. Okay, gonna keep reading. 
Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. Now it turns. The story gets a bit nasty. But you trusted in your beauty, played the whore because of your renown, lavished your whorings on any passerby, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. You see why it's called adultery in the New Testament and unfaithfulness? It's that same kind of blunt imagery. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver that I had given you, and you made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. 22. Why did she do this? Why did she do this? 22. And in all your abominations, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. Now, don't allow yourself. That's not a comfy passage of scripture to read. Don't allow yourself to miss the fact that this strange passage means something to us, January 1st, right here at Cedar View Community Church. Note the logic of God in this extended, blunt story. Verse 15 describes the unfaithfulness of the people in words we don't even use anymore. But it's verse 22 that says why Israel did this. It tells us why Israel failed God so miserably. It states the reason. And the reason was they forgot. You didn't do this. Had the people remembered their past, they would have stayed humble. They would have stayed pure. They would have stayed blessed by God. What they did was they forgot that they were once hopeless, that they couldn't clean themselves up, and the results were disastrous. So that's one text. B. Remembering our past hopelessness helps us treasure the love and forgiveness of God. This is a shorter passage, and we're almost done. Maybe you remember this story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. Jesus is telling this parable. This is Jesus speaking. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, either of them, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more. A lot of you will know the background to this little story. The words come from Jesus. They're addressed to Simon the Pharisee because Simon was ticked off that Jesus would allow this prostitute to anoint his head and feet with oil and Jesus would pronounce her forgiven. Simon, a Pharisee, can't stand it. 
And Jesus points out Simon showed none of the same passion for Jesus that this sinful woman did. But it wasn't because Simon wasn't just as great a sinner as this woman. It was because Simon had forgotten that he was without hope apart from Christ. This prostitute knew it. Simon forgot it. Most of us know one of God's choicest trophies of grace, John Newton. The hymn we call Amazing Grace is actually a song that he wrote to accompany a New Year's sermon. Get that. He wrote it to accompany a New Year's sermon based on 1 Chronicles 17.16. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have... See those words? Brought me thus far. That triggered the writing of that hymn by John Newton. To this day, we sing those words, "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far." John Newton's godly mother died when he was six. And he was raised by a coarse, godless, seafaring father and thought nothing of the sins that would make Christians blush So after years of profiting from the trading of slaves, he finally experienced God's amazing grace in his own heart. He pastored two churches in London for 43 years. He became a very close friend with William Wilberforce, Charles Simeon, William Carey, John Wesley, George Whitfield. He died at the age of 82, but not before he penned these words of his own epitaph, John Newton, clerk. Talking about remembering, right? Remembering? You were once without hope? Once an infidel, a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa. As by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long, this is remembering, labored to destroy. He ministered near 16 years as curate and vicar of Olney and Bucks, and 28 as rector of these united parishes. Remember that you were once without hope. Cling to that precious memory of your hopelessness before Christ. It will keep the words of praise from getting clogged up in your throat. It will keep your songs of worship from being thoughtless and boring. It will keep your prayer times hot and vital all year long, all year long. Remember that you were once without hope. It is the fast track to joy unspeakable. I said there were two things. Here's the third thing that remembering will do for you. See. Remembering our past hopelessness helps us keep a burning love for lost souls. 
They say John Newton was most famous not for his preaching or for his hymn writing, but for his tender heart for the lost. He put it like this just before he died. This is a quote from John Newton. And now I'm on my last page of notes, so relax. Here's what he said. Quote. Try and stay focused on this. This is really good. A company of travelers fall into a pit. One of them gets a passenger to draw him out. Now, he should not be angry with the rest for falling in, nor because they were not yet out as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, of reproaching them, he should show them pity. And I underline this. A man truly illuminated will not any more despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were opened, would take a stick and beat every blind man he met. What powerful words. Newton says, nothing tests our understanding of grace like our patience for lost stubborn sinners. Remember, Don, you too. Standing up there preaching in this big church. Don, just as much as anybody else who's ever drawn breath, you were without hope. And that's supposed to do something in here. I wonder how many times in God's eyes, thinking of John Newton's words, I wonder how many times in God's eyes I've looked like healed Bartimaeus still beating all the blind people he could find with a stick. Divine grace is not only amazing and sweet. The effect of grace is to sweeten all those whose eyes it opens. We keep our souls humble and receptive when we remember we were lost and without hope. So here's what you can take home. You'll remember this. Whenever you're out walking and you see a turtle sitting on top of the fence post, you will know he didn't get there by himself. Remember, you were once without hope. Get out of bed. 365 mornings in a row when your feet hit the ground. If you want to start the day right. Thank you, Jesus, because I was once without hope. Let it fill my heart with praise. And let it increase my passion for those still lost and without hope. And everybody said...